listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we've been in the book of John. Come on up here, Keith. We've been in the book of John for the past almost a couple of months now, and we're in the middle of a seven-part series. Uh, we've been looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. Can anybody tell me? So we've covered, so today is week number six, and we're going to be looking at I am the way, the truth, and the life. Probably one of the most familiar passages, John 14, uh, verse 6. We're going to be looking at the context of that, looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 14. But can somebody, you don't have to raise your hand, just blurt out, what have we seen? So we've seen five I am statements of Jesus already. What are those five? If you got just at least one of them, I am the what? Bread of life, light of the world, resurrection and the life. Not a good shepherd yet, that's next week. <laughs> we'll forgive you. Door, yep. The vine, good work. So today I'm the resurrection and the life. That was Liz. All right, Liz, gold star on your award chart in heaven. Um, so today I am the way, the truth, and the life. So hopefully you're in John chapter 14 with me already. If you're not, go there. And Keith is actually going to uh, kick this off for us. Some, some folks are like, man, I, I like it when you and Keith, you know, tag team this. Um, that's cool. We don't really have this on the docket to do in a long time. So for those of y'all who are like, I'm not in that camp. I really don't like it. <laughs> cool. That's, that's good for you too. Uh, because uh, this is just something a little bit different. Normally we're walking through the passage of scripture um, and I've enjoyed this time. So uh, we're going to be doing that again this morning. So Keith, take us into verse number one of John 14. All right, here we go. John chapter 14, verse one starts off. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you ever read a verse like that and think, yeah, right. <laughs> After the week that I have just had, if you knew what my week was like and you were to say to me, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, Chris mentioned earlier uh, a little bit about his week. We had some confessional time earlier. And so you read a verse like this and you think, after the week I've just had, maybe you've had a week like mine that has had its ups and downs, maybe more downs than ups, or maybe more ups and downs. I don't know your week as you come into this. But what do we do when Jesus says something like this? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Anyone had a troubled heart this week? Anybody? Am I the only one? Chris, raise your hand. You already confessed. I'll see a few. It's good when you raise your hand. I, I know that I'm connected. It's not so much some of you are pointing at someone else, and that's not okay. Let's try not to do that. Let's just keep it to our own personal self this morning. But what if you're like me and you had one of those weeks? What do you do if you're coming in this morning and maybe your heart does feel trouble? What is Jesus telling us here? And I want to, we'll get into this a little bit more as we go. But maybe you're like me and you feel the weight of living, living in a broken world. You want to feel the weight of living in a broken world? where there are broken relationships. Maybe this past week there have been moments where there's been stress. Maybe you've had a conversation that you needed to have with someone and it was hard and you were worried about it. Maybe there was some frustration. Maybe there's someone driving slow and weaving in front of you. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe there's been grief. Maybe there's been maybe something you would consider depression as you come into this. 
Maybe you're like me and some of the trouble that you're having is not because of someone else's sin or the brokenness that you feel with the, uh, living in that broken world, but your own sin. Maybe it's something that you're, it's your own choices that leave you in a place where your heart is troubled. Some choices that you can't seem to do it different. And you keep promising, I'll do it better next time, but you keep finding yourself in that place where you could have said something kind, but you said something sharp. You could have clothed yourself with compassion, but you said something with contempt. Anyone else, maybe it's your own sin that you're dealing with, that you come in and you're like, here, my heart's troubled because I can't just seem to get past this. Again, as Chris was saying this morning, maybe I'm the one that feels like a burden to everyone else in this. Maybe you're like me and you can relate to all of the above. So in just a moment, however you're coming in, I want you to think, what are you bringing in with you this morning? Is it a troubled heart? And what do we do with that? Can we hold that for a moment? I'm going to just talk through some other points that I think as we get into verse 1. We're not going to take this much time with every single verse as we go through this passage, but I think it's really important for us to know, how are you coming in this morning? And can we hold that? And we're going to take a moment to pray about some of those things. But I want to talk about the context of this verse uh, for just a moment. As we come into chapter 14, we're obviously coming out of chapter 13, and this is the, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He has, Peter has said, I'm going to follow you till I die. And he says, no, you're not, you know, but you will follow me ultimately. There's a lot of things that are happening here as we come into this in this dialogue that Jesus is having with, with his disciples. And he tells them a little bit later, I'm leaving. The context, as he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled, is a very specific context to this passage. And, that, and it means that he's leaving, but I'm going to send another helper to you. I'm going to send the Spirit to be with you. So the context here is, as I leave, I've got so much more. I wish I could tell you more things, but I'm not. I'm leaving. Good luck with your hopes and dreams. I'll check you out later. Now, he doesn't leave them at that place. He says, I'm going to be with you. My presence is actually going to be with you. So I have so much more to tell you, but I'm leaving. So trouble does not mean here... Troubled, and I just think it's really important for us to hold this however you're coming in. Trouble does not mean don't feel negative emotions. Trouble does not mean don't feel negative, negative emotions or don't have concerns. Don't feel the weight of this broken world. Don't feel the, the weight of broken relationships. Don't feel the pain that we feel when things are not going uh, well in relationships or even with our, our own lives. So growing up, I got that message somehow. I got the message that if you are feeling something negative, you have negative emotions, if you're sad over something or if you're grieving over something or if there's something negative that's happening uh, in your own emotions, that that is bad. You cannot be trusting God and feel something negative at the same time. Anyone else grow up in a situation like that? Yeah, I see hands all across the auditorium are raised. Good. Um, yeah, so if you're, if you're sad, you must not believe in God. If you're concerned or you're bothered or if you're just not okay, then that's not okay because it means that you're not trusting God. So anytime I felt something negative, I would carry this guilt and this pressure to stuff it and say I'm okay when I wasn't. There was a song that I, we would sing in, in kids' church when I was growing up. Maybe some of you remember this song. Maybe you sang this song as well. And you could, you fill in the blank, all right? So I'm going to tell you the words and you tell me if you know the rest of it. Since Jesus Christ came in and took away my sin, I am in right, outright, upright, downright, Happy all the time. Good. I was usually, after singing that song, I was uptight. I was not in right, outright. 
happy all the time. So how do I know that this is not what Jesus means, that we're, if I'm not happy all the time, does that mean I'm not trusting God, that my faith isn't in God? Well, it's interesting because it says, let not your hearts be troubled. But in chapter 13, we won't hit all the verses, but in chapter 13, Jesus says that he was troubled in his spirit over Judas's betrayal. Interesting, right? It says that Jesus was troubled. In chapter 12, before chapter 13, Jesus is looking towards the cross. He's coming in, the triumphal entry, as he comes in, and he's thinking about, he's going to go die on the cross, and it says that he was, his soul was troubled, that Jesus' soul was troubled as he thought about that. In chapter 11, it says, as Jesus, we already covered this, Jesus was going to the tomb, and it says that he was deeply moved, and he was troubled at the tomb of Jesus. So when he comes to this here, and we also, we know that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that his soul, it says his soul was in deep agony, and he was in deep sorrow, and he sweat drops of blood over the pain and the agony that he was feeling. So obviously when he says, let not your hearts be troubled, this is not a double standard that Jesus is giving us here, right? It was possible for him to be stirred up this word trouble here means it's, it's kind of the same word you would use if water is boiling. It's agitated and it's stirring up. So we know at one of the healings, the, uh, par, uh, the guy who was paralyzed was looking at the waters and he says, I can't get into the waters when the angel troubles the water, stirs up the water when it's moving. I don't have time to get in. So it's this idea, it's the same thing. It's not talking about negative emotions. It's talking about when you're stirred up towards disbelief. So in other words, don't let your heart be stirred up to not believing, because what is he going to say? You believe the Father, believe also in me. So if you're carrying troubled, a troubled heart this morning, I think we have some answers of what to do with that troubled heart that you're feeling. So in the context here, Jesus is talking specifically about his going away. Don't let your hearts be troubled about my death, and then I'm telling you that I'm leaving, because there's something good in this. Anybody tracking with me? Don't let your hearts be troubled about the news of my going away and my departure because I'm going to tell you the answer to that. You don't have to be stirred up or agitated. Don't let your, don't let your troubled heart move you towards a place of unbelief. Do you carry some trouble in you? Yes. But don't be troubled to the place that it takes you out of your faith because there's something good you can believe in even when you feel the ache of living in the fallen world. You believe in God. You believe in the Father. I'm going to send the Spirit and I'm going to be with you is what Jesus is going to tell us in these next several verses. You can, believe, you can believe this. You will not lose my presence. I'm going away. And in this world, you will have trouble. But it doesn't have to move you towards unbelief because my presence is going to be with you. So I just want to invite us with whatever you were thinking about earlier when I said, have you had a week that's had some trouble? <laughs> right here in River City, right? Have you had some trouble? What are you bringing in with you this morning? And I just want to ask you, maybe you could, you could just hold that in your hands before you. What is the thing that you're anxious about, that your heart is troubled about? And can we just lift that? And I just want to pray for us this morning as we come into this time. Jesus, you have given us a promise that in this world we will have trouble. Things will not always go the way that we hope. That following you will not always lead to all happiness, but we can, it does lead to joy. And thank you that we can rest in your presence this morning. Thank you that we can bring our trouble to you, that we can cast our anxiety on you and know that you love us and that your presence and that our hope is still in you. 
that life is not an absence of trouble, but life is knowing your presence and being connected to you. So Father, whatever we are carrying with us today, I pray that we would hold it honestly before you, that you would meet us in those places. And thank you for your word that we get to continue to look at this morning. And I pray that you would recalibrate, realign our hearts to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. If we keep going, you can look at verse number two with me. Let's look at these next few verses. We're going to kind of see the context of this passage. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Or would I have told you that? Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So he says here, I'm going away up into heaven. So what are, y'all can help me out with this one. So what are some of our common perceptions? Let's say wrong perceptions. What are some of our common misperceptions of what heaven is going to be like? When we think about heaven, what's often told to us? Here's what it's going to be like. Anybody? Peace? Yeah, so, I would, so that is what it's going to be. Um, what do we often hear about where it's like, oh, I don't actually think that's what it's going to be. So what are some things that maybe we're told? Um, St. Peter's going to be at the gate. Yeah. We don't see that here. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Like the Falcons win a Super Bowl. Yeah. He talked about earthly desires being fulfilled up there. Yeah. Yeah. Because it will take an eternity for that to happen. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Play? I mean, that's kind of where this song came from, right? Audio adrenaline? <laughs> Who said that? We got some, yeah. yeah. Don't know where you lay your head away. Hey, we're, we're, can I get some more piano? Let's, uh, okay. <laughs> it's going to be a big, big house. Yep, with lots and lots of rooms. That's what it says here, right? <laughs> what else? Streets of gold. I think those are going to be there, right? Maybe, yeah. What else? Playing harps, yeah. We have, we have this idea of heaven, right? Where we're all gonna be flying around with wings and there's gonna be some, some like naked baby angels there, right? On clouds and we're gonna be able to fly and it's just gonna be, we're all just gonna like running around, oh, you know, just like we're all singing these high-pitched notes. And really when we think about heaven in, in that way, it almost sounds a little more like hell, right? You're like, I don't, I don't know if I wanna go to heaven, if all we're going to do is like float around with harps. So here we have is, here's what heaven is actually going to be like. Jesus says, I, I am going to go and prepare a house for you, my father's house. And if we have a father, what does that mean about us? We are his children, which makes us what? To each other. Brothers and sisters, we are family we are, man, we, get, we got this all day. So, all right, we, songs all, all from this passage. We are family. But here's, as we look at this passage, as you, as you look at verses two through four, we may not see this from our Western eyes, but from Eastern, from an Eastern perspective, when you hear about this person, this, this son, who's going back to his father's house to prepare a room for someone else, for us, What's the image, what's the context that is conjured in our minds from this? Someone going back to his father's house and preparing a room. Anybody have any guesses? A bridegroom, 
So the image here is one of marriage. Okay, so for us, we get married and your, your parents are like, yeah, get out of here, you know? Um, like go, go start your life somewhere else. Go find an apartment, go buy a house. Just go somewhere else for the most part. But in the Eastern context, what would happen when a, when a young man would have a young lady to marry, it was set up by their parents. And so it was an arranged marriage. And so this is what was happening in Jesus' time. So the parents would get together. They, would, they had a young son, the, the groom, and they would find a young lady and they would say, the parents would get together, hey, can our son, the groom, can he marry your daughter as the bride? And they would either say yes or no. They'd figure it out. So the parents would get together, and they would have a meal at that point. They would say, yes, we want our children to come together, our son, your daughter, to be wed together. At that moment, they would share a meal. They would discuss a price for the young lady, and not in a way of human trafficking like today, but in a way of saying, you are very valuable to me. So in almost a way, even in our context today in 2023, of presenting a ring to this young lady, they would say, here's the price. Here's how valuable you are. I'm going to, you know, the, the price for the young lady may be a couple of goats or a pig and a cow. That's the agrarian society they were in. Or if you saw a young lady, you may be like, wow, this is a, this is a two cow kind of girl. You know what I mean? So depending on how valuable this young lady was to her family, they would make that that barter there. At the meal, they would present the, some of y'all, y'all are kind of stuck on that, right? You're going to be thinking about that all day. So at the meal. We don't have to say everything that comes to our mind. I know, I'm sorry. We're we're working on this. Shannon's not here. (laughs) You got to work harder, Keith, all right? You got to earn your keep. Shannon's not here. She's at home with, uh, we're keeping our nieces. And so one of them is sick. So Shannon's there. So I don't have my, my, my filter with me today. So the, the, the groom's parents would present him with a cup of wine. And to signify that this marriage was going to happen, the groom would take a sip of the cup of wine and then present it to the young lady and say, would you be my wife? And she would take a sip of the wine to say, yes, I am going to be your wife. At that point, the price of the bride was firm and this marriage was going to happen, but it wasn't time yet. So the young man, the groom, the future groom, would go back to his father's house and begin adding on to his father's house in preparation for this marriage, for this bride to come live at his father's house. So the young man would go back and be preparing this room, this additional to the home, and he would go to his dad, hey, is the house ready? You think this is good enough? And the dad would say, ah, let's, let me help you out. Here's a few more things to do to add on. Then he would go back to his dad. Dad, is it ready? Is it time? Eventually, the dad would say, well done. Now it is time to go and get your bride. So at that point, there would be a huge party. The, the young man would get all of his guy friends, and they would start this procession going down into the village of this young lady's town. So they'd be saying, prepare the way. Literally, it sounds really familiar, right? They would say, prepare the way. Prepare the way for the groom. He is coming to get his bride. So the bride would hear this procession coming down. Maybe she had heard before uh, this procession, but it was for one of her girlfriends or it was for somebody else. So she would be sitting there with anticipation, hopeful anticipation that it was for her. Well, the groom would show up at her house and say, I am ready for you to come back and live with me to be my bride forever and ever. So we see the image here of this bride. Now, when they heard, when they heard this, when the disciples heard this, talking about my father's house, I'm going and preparing a room for you, they would have had this context of marriage. They understood this to be an intimate, deep, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And what, what Jesus is saying to them is, while you are waiting, you are to wait with hopeful anticipation. In fact, if you look at this word room here, in my father's house are many rooms. Chris talked about it a couple of weeks ago in the next chapter, in chapter 15. This word mano, everybody say mano. Mano means to abide. It's the same word here that he uses for rooms. It's the same word for remain or to stay or literally for us to be at home together. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am coming back to get you. I'm coming back. You are my bride. You are the one that I want. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Our relationship is sure. So in the in-between time, in this already, I've said you are mine, but the not yet, I haven't come to get you yet, you are to wait with hopeful anticipation. And then we transition into verse number five. Notice here, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Here we see the first miracle in this passage. We have a man asking for directions. Lord, how can we know the way? All right, Keith. So Keith is going to tell us, how can we know the way? This man is asking for directions. Why is he asking this in terms of this relational dialogue? Yeah, and I love the, the image of the bride that we're called there. And if you've been to one of the spiritual conversation workshops, we, we talk a lot about our identity in Christ. We spend a lot of time on that. But we look at a lot of words from Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul is telling us often, and most of his letters, when you look at that, he's saying this is who God is. This is what God is like. And then there's a place where he says, therefore, this is what, who you are, and this is what his character on display looks like. So we come here, we haven't, we haven't talked about, in that spiritual conversations workshop, there's not a place where we talk about the word bride, but it's a great place as we look at who are we. We are a bride. It's an identity statement. It's one that has, as you were talking about earlier, it's one of intimacy, it's one of it's personal, it's one of delight, our, in, our identity as a bride. And so as we think about uh, Thomas's question and we come into this, part of what he's saying is don't let your heart be troubled because of who I am. He's going to say, don't let your hearts be troubled because of who I am. In other words, don't let it take you out of your belief. But he's also going to say, don't let your heart be troubled because of who you are, because of what I call you. I'm calling you my bride, and there's a guarantee that I'm coming back for you because of who I am. And so as we get into verse 6, Jesus answers, and we've talked a lot about this. Often people ask what, how questions. How do we do this? What do we do? Where do we go for this? And Jesus answers with a who answer. It's an intimate, it's a personal uh, answer. It's one of identity. So he says in verse six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not know him. I mean, you do know him and you have seen him. So as he does this, and I think we have uh, a slide for this. One of the ways for me, you read, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What we're saying there is that that is an identity statement. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. It's a relational statement. For me, though, I, it's tempting for me to read something like this and say, way, truth, life, and I translate it in my own mind, and I move it away from a personalized statement, one from a, an identity statement, and I move it to a task-type statement. So I turn the word way, I am the way, and I come up with a bunch of steps, right? I come up with some how-tos. I want to know what the what and the how, the where, the when. I come up with a list of commands, if you're using a GPS, you can look up directions and it gives you step-by-step -step turn all the way through. 
right? And you can read, where are all the steps I need to take in order to get to this place that I'm going? And Jesus says, I'm here. You don't have to go through all these steps to get to the destination that you're hoping for. I'm here now, and I'm going to bring you home. I am the way. It's not task. It's not steps that you're going to take. So I can bypass communion, and I can bypass relationship and just move to a list of tasks. In truth, I can look at just a bunch of information or a bunch of facts. Where's the information that I need? Where are the facts that I have to have in order to get the life that I really want? What's the good life? What's the life that I can have? What's the life with no trouble? What's, what do I have to do in order to feel good? And if you've got good principles, good biblical principles, or Christian ways for me to get that, if you've got some steps I can take, if you've got some truth and information that I can believe, then I'll just use my willpower and I'll get it. Does this make sense? Anybody else with me? So I turn this thing uh, where Jesus is asking, inviting me to relationship, inviting me to know who I am as his bride, inviting me to know that his presence is going to be with me, and I depersonalize it. And then I weaponize the truth. You know, it's supposed to be a sword. I, I turn it into uh, something that's different from a surgeon using a scalpel to cut out something that might is harmful and cut out things that would keep me from being whole to live in a life that is actually uh, flourishing on, with him. And I turn it into a shank in a prison thing. Like, ah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Anybody know anyone like that? <laughs> they use the word of God more like a shank than like a surgeon's scalpel. I read a couple quotes this past week. It says, sometimes it's easier to trust a system of beliefs than a living God who personally engages with us. Read that again. Sometimes it's easier to trust a system of beliefs than a living God who personally engages with us. Another quote from this same author. It says, connection with God requires engaging beyond a scientific approach to theology. A connection with God requires engaging beyond a scientific approach to theology. And I want to say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. In order to get connected to God and to stay connected. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what to know and I'll memorize it. And I'll repeat it. But without knowing Jesus, then I assume that my way of knowing will actually lead me to the life that I want. Does that make sense? Without Jesus, without my identity being firm in who he says I am and who he says he is, then without knowing him, then I assume that my actual, my way of figuring things out, my way of knowing will actually lead me to the life that I want. So Jesus' answer to Thomas is one of identity and it's personal. It's interesting, as you look at Thomas's question in, uh, in uh, verse five, it says Thomas, or you know, he asked this question, but Thomas' question assumes an answer that keeps him as the source of the solution. Right, think about that for a moment. The way he had, the question that he asked assumes that Thomas can actually do something that keeps him as the source to the answer of his question, that keeps Thomas as the source. Tell us how to get this, and I'll do it. Who's the source of life in that? Thomas. His question assumes that Thomas can actually do something in order to get it. So, it's basically he's saying this, if I just had the right information and I had enough willpower, then it would get me close and keep me close to God. So he changes, and Jesus is going to answer him with an identity statement, but for me, I can change it from an identity statement to a task type question. And so the way that Jesus, the, who he is must come to us. The way must come to us. It does not come from us. It's not going to come from Thomas, and it's not going to come from him knowing how to get it done. It's going to come from him. And so that's going to bring us into uh, more in chapter, uh, verse 7. Yeah, so if we look at <clears throat> right before that, so we see that this is not the way. 
of working through the way, the truth, and the life. So what Jesus is saying, my identity leads to, gives you identity, which then leads to a way of living. So often we're, we say, okay, way, truth, and life. Okay, so how do I live those out, right? Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's my identity. It's my work. And like Keith just said, I'm coming to you. You can't work your way to me. So here's how we should see those things. First of all, he says, I am the way. Here's what I want you to see about the way is that Christianity is not exclusive because of who it lets in, but because there is only one way to get in. It is not exclusive because of who it lets in. It's inclusive in that way. It lets in Jew and Greek, rich and poor, black and white, old and young, smart, unsmart, rich and poor. It lets all types of people, it's inclusive for all types of folks from the world, but it's exclusive because Jesus is the only way into a relationship with the Father. And Jesus doesn't just say, hey, there's the way. He says, I am the way. And he takes you and leads you by the hand. Because salvation is not a prayer that we pray. Salvation is a person in whom we place our trust. It is personal. That's what Jesus is saying, I am. But secondly, he says, I am the truth. And if you don't know the truth, then you're not dealing with reality. And if you're not dealing with reality, you're not ready for eternity. You may go, I may go to the bank. I don't know the last time I went to the bank, probably like 2004, you know. Um, I do it all on my phone. But if I went to the bank and I said, hey, how much money do I have in my account? They say 100 bucks. I'm not going to tell them that may be your truth. But my truth is that I actually have $10,000 in my account. You're like, yeah, well, obviously. But we do that in our society so many times. Hey, that's your truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. That, in theory, that may work with Christianity or with religion or with belief systems. In reality, it does not work. It does not work in any area of your life. It just doesn't work. We must know the truth so that we can live in reality. And you may say, or somebody may say to you, you can pick whichever religion works for you. Friend, that's not true. You may think that works for you or somebody may think that works for them today, but it doesn't work for God. And it's not going to work when you stand before him. It's not going to work on your last day on earth. So we talk about this idea of way, truth, and life. Um, it would be like if you had a terminal illness, one that you had brought on yourself, not one where you got a disease, you couldn't help it, but you had this terminal illness that you've, you'd brought on yourself. And you go to the doctor and he says, yeah, you are absolutely going to expire from this illness because of lifestyle decisions, that kind of thing. You'd probably begin asking the doctor a number of questions. One, you would say, are you sure that I actually had this illness? right? Let me get a second opinion. You get a second, third, fourth, whatever it is. Yes, you absolutely have this disease. Secondly, you would ask the doctor, are there any treatment options for this? And the doctor would say, yes, there is only one treatment option for this. Okay, praise God. This is fantastic. Okay, thirdly, what, um, what's the success rate of this, op of this treatment? And the doctor says, it's 100%. If you get this treatment, you are guaranteed to be cured of this disease. 
You're like, man, this sounds a little too good to be true. I don't, I don't know about this yet. Um, what about the side effects? What are the side effects of this treatment? And the doctor says, there are no side effects, actually. You go to the, you know, you, you watch these commercials about these different drugs on TV, and uh, you're like, man, all I have is like a headache and my, and my tummy hurts, but now you begin taking these drugs, and it's like, I may spontaneously combust at some point, right? You know what I'm saying? But you go to the doctor, and he says, no, there, there are no side effects for this. You're like, okay, so here's the catch. There must be a huge price that I have to pay for this, because otherwise, it just sounds too ridiculous for it to be true. And the doctor says, actually, there has, there's a gracious benefactor who has paid for this treatment option for you. And all you have to do is receive the treatment option and there's a 100% success rate that your disease is going to be cured. You're like, man, this seems like a no-brainer. But instead of saying that, what you say to the doctor is, you know what? What color are the pills that I have to take? And he says, they're blue pills. You say, you know what, doctor? I don't like blue pills. I really prefer red pills. And so I'm going to say no to this treatment option. You would say, no, man, that, that sounds kind of crazy. You would be crazy to reject this free offer. And friends, that's what Christ is saying here. I am the way. I am the truth. I am it. I am it. There is no other option. It has been paid for. My life, my blood, my body is broken for you to receive this. All you have to do is receive. All you have to do is believe. And so, op- so often we're like, yeah, but are there any other options? Can I, what about? No. The last thing that Jesus says, I am the life. I am it. I am the life. Our human condition is death. It's because of us that we're born into this. Our human condition is death, but life has been purchased by Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the only solution to the problem that we have made. And once we find our identity in Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then we're able to live from that, to live from that life. Yeah, you know, as you say that, and I think about some of the things we were talking about earlier, if I just have these steps, if I just have, you know, a, a bad definition of better life, as something outside of making life work outside of God, what do I share with someone who comes to me and says that they have a troubled heart? What do I have to offer them? If it's not, if my identity is not solid in my belief of who God is and who Jesus is, who the Father is, if, if I don't have that as my base, without his, I, my identity being in him, without his presence and the guarantee of his presence, without this idea of bride, without this idea of him being the way, the truth, and the life, what I'll actually do is I'll, I'll try to give them steps. I'll try to give them willpower. Just try harder next time. I'll just try to give them some information. If they could just get that, they would be okay. Look, if information made you better, we would all have great bodies, right? Because we, we know what to do. If we all had, it's not, it's, that's not the issue, right? So if someone comes to me and says, what do you, well, you know, here's the trouble that I'm going on. I'll try to prop them, with, prop them up with feel-good statements because it'll be all I have to give them. Or I'll try to give them some advice or some steps. Or I'll try to speak some truth over them and tell them that they shouldn't feel the way they're feeling. Here's why, and I'll... I'll put more pressure and shame and guilt on them the whole time I'm doing that. But what does Jesus do here? He's, he brings us to the Father's heart. He brings us to himself. And if my identity is in him, if, if I know I'm assured of his presence, then I'm going to bring them to belief in the Father that who he is is true. This isn't just a philosophical statement that Jesus is saying. This isn't just some theory that he's coming up with. This is real. 
that ultimate reality, truth, ultimate reality is Jesus. And if I'm going to talk, if I'm going to deal with my own troubled heart, then I'm going to have to continue to come before and believe what Jesus is saying in this, or my faith will get tanked, or I'll move to principles or more steps. So it's actually, and we all know this, it's easier to teach a class about marriage than it is actually to be in marriage, right? It's easier to teach a class about raising kids a certain way than it is to raise kids a certain way. I can teach a class about marriage because I can stand up here with notes and say all the things I'm supposed to say, but if Rachel says something I don't like, what happens? What stirs in me, right? And I turn to her and I go, all right, I teach this. What do I tell other people to do? It just, it doesn't work in that moment. I have to believe something greater than that. There's just steps that I can do. I have to believe in the actual reality of the Father's heart for me when someone does something that I don't like. And that's the invitation that we continue to come back here. And we see this in Philip asking this question here. You know, if we pick up in verse number seven, we can almost put ourselves in the place of Thomas and of Philip. In verse number seven, let's read down through verse 11. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. This is Jesus speaking. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. They still want more, right? They still want more. And we've seen this all. If you would just do this, Jesus, then we would believe. Yeah, yeah, thanks for healing all these people. Thanks for feeding all, you know, thousands of people. Thanks for all these things, all these. If you just do one more thing for us, then we'll believe. Jesus said to him, verse eight, sorry, verse nine, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I imagine at this point, Jesus just like throwing up his hands. I've told you all these things. You've seen dozens, if not hundreds of miracles. And I'm telling you to believe me. If you look back, how does he begin the verse? I mean, sorry, how does he begin the chapter? In verse number one, let your your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Here he's saying, believe in me. What's the reason that John wrote this entire book? That you may believe. And Jesus is saying, my whole life, and now I'm about to be on the cross in a matter of hours. My whole life has been pointing to this, that you may believe, no matter what life looks like. A couple of weeks ago, I was having trouble with my fridge and uh, and my freezer went out and everything, you know, the ice starts kind of getting kind of melty in the freezer, you know what I'm talking about? Ice cream starts getting, you know, the most important thing in the fridge starts getting kind of melty. So we had to get everything out of the freezer. Well, the next thing to go the next day was the refrigerator. And so I'm back trying to, you know, and it's, we bought it less than a year ago. We moved into our house and um, I got Shannon one of the, one of the nicer ones. And you would imagine for all the dollars that I paid for this, you would get, you know, this thing would last for like 50, 60 years, something like that. Well, it didn't make it quite a year. And so a couple of weekends, a couple of Saturdays ago, you know, in the flesh, not in the spirit. I was sitting at my dining room table after having troubleshot every single thing. I finally realized it's the compressor. The compressor on this refrigerator is bad. But I was sitting, seething at my dining room table, not just like, oh, well, it's a compressor. Praise God, you know? No, no, no. I was praying. I was, I was angry at God because my refrigerator 
was broken. Now I had another refrigerator in the basement, thankfully, that the old owners had left there. But I was still angry, not because I have two working refrigerators, but now I only have one, right? You're like, well, that sounds kind of crazy. Are you, have you ever been there? You're just like, man, Jesus, if you would just heal my refrigerator, then I would believe. If you would just do this thing for me, then I would believe. If you would just help me with this, fill in the blank, job, money, family, if you would just heal this, if you would just fix this, if you would just change this, then I would believe. If you would just give me the satisfaction, the desires of my heart, if you would just, then I would believe. Then I would, because I don't want you for life. I want you to provide life in something else. Yeah, you're good for something. It's for giving me the desires of my heart. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand where life is found. It's not found in a fixed refrigerator, in a fixed relationship. It's found in me, even in the midst of our hearts being troubled. And so as you read this, you look at Philip and you're like, come on, Philip. Friend, that is us this morning. We sit and we look and we read. And Jesus says, yes, if you would just believe. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And if you would just do this also. So we're in the middle of this already, not yet. So how do we reckon these things? Yeah, well, as we look at uh, verse 12 through the end of this little section here, verse 12 through 14, I'll just read this and we'll come back and, and think through what do we do with this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So remember, be, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away. And now he's saying something very interesting. If, when I go to the Father, something good is going to happen. Whatever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We're not going to dive into that verse so much as, as much as look at the, the invitation for us to, to believe for our hearts to be at home in the Father. He's going to go on to say, we're not going to get into those verses if you were to keep reading. He said, we're going to make our dwelling, we're going to abide in you. The Father and the Son, we are going to make our home, our dwelling in you. You're going to have our presence. So our greatest need is not for all these things to go well, for refrigerators never to go broke, or for the check engine light to never come on. Your greatest need is for my presence. We were talking about this earlier uh, Michael and I, as we were looking at this passage, it's interesting because when, when God calls someone to go into a new era of time, into a new place, when he's calling Moses to go to leave Egypt and he's going to take him into the wilderness, there's a promise that always comes. You're going to go into a new situation, but I'm going to give you a promise with that situation. What's his promise? You want to take a guess? I will be with you as presence. So Joshua is going to go into the, to the promised land. And what's his promise to Joshua? Presence. When we go into the king, the era of time, it was his promise. Presence. When Jesus is returning and he's saying, you're going to be my disciples, what does he promise them? Presence. Why? Because it turns out that's what we need more than anything, to be with him, for him to be at home, for us to be at home in him. We are created, as we talk about the already and not yet, that there's something in us that we know that we're created for more than this world, but you're also created for something more than this world in the sense that he's going to indwell in you. Because every place that you take yourself into when his presence is in you, there's, some, there's a longing in you that his presence is with you. That is your deepest longing is for his presence. Are you with me on that? Your deepest longing is for his presence. 
And so when he talks about the greater works as we're thinking through that, he's not saying that you're going to do greater miracles. You're going to come into a room and like miracles are going to start happening all around you. What he's saying is that you're going to do your, the greater extent because your presence is going to bend into every room that you go into. My presence, you're taking my presence into every place that you go into. The kingdom of God bends into the room when you walk into a room. Again, this isn't philosophy, this isn't theory, this is reality. Because we have his presence in us. And that is what we take with us. I'm going to make my home in you. So, I think we have a slide on this. When Jesus, what Jesus did on earth is what he is continuing to accomplish from heaven through his people. What does God want to do on earth? He's going to do it through us, his people that carry his presence with us in every place that we go into. And this is really, we have to think hard about this because what you think about, if you go through Zillow and you're looking through the website and you're looking at these houses, you can imagine what it would look like for you to live there. That's a huge difference than when you actually move in. It's not something that we just theorize about or just read about. It's something that we actually move into. And he's saying, I'm going to move in to you and make my home you. You're going to then one day come and I'm going to make, this is about home. This is about presence and your identity in him. And this is where we are. So take us home <laughs> with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so today, here's the invitation. We have it right here. We started with it. Christ invites us to believe. And he says, here's what it means to believe, to experience life, true life, to experience the way of Christ. I am the way. I'll take you by the hand. To experience truth, to live in a true reality. And so this morning, even though we can live with trouble, the invitation to believe in God grants us these three promises. And we've seen these, and these come from our Trinitarian identity. It grants us the promise of access to the Father, access to the creator of the world, to the Father. 15 times in the Old Testament is the personal name Father mentioned. 15 times in all of the Old Testament, God as Father is referenced. Not very many. In all 39 books, only 15 times. And most of those times, it is the Father of the nation of Israel. God is Father of the nation of Israel. If we look at, um, through the Gospels, Jesus references God the Father 160 times. In John's gospel, Jesus references the Father just about 100 times. And right here, as we've seen just in these few verses, we've seen it 10 times that Jesus says, me and the Father, we're one. You have access to the Father. He's saying this is transformational for you for all of human history and for us sitting here this morning. So one, as you believe in Jesus Christ, you have access to the Father. Secondly, we've just seen, Keith just said this, we have access to the work of the Holy Spirit, which pours out from our identity. We're not working for the presence of God, we're working from the presence of God. We have him who is part of us. But then lastly, you have Jesus Christ with you. And as we saw in chapter 13, like we referenced, this is what we call the Last Supper or communion, the Lord's Supper. And there, Jesus, remember the context, chapter 14 began with this picture of a wedding ceremony, of a wedding feast. What did they just come out of? In chapter 13, the Last Supper, Jesus took the glass of wine and he says, take, I'm going to drink this and I want you to drink this. The cost of you, the bride, is my life. 
that's what Christ was saying at the end of chapter 13. And as we go into 14, he says, the cost of the church is my life. And I'm going, and I'm going to my light, my heart, my body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be poured out for you so that you can overcome, defeat death. That's the price that I'm going to pay for you. And we have access to Jesus today. We have access to life today because of his sacrifice. He calls it there in chapter 13. He says, this is a new covenant. It is my blood. It is my body that is broken for you. So today we have this picture, this image of marriage, and we are able to live with hopeful anticipation that Christ is coming again. And he's going to call us by name as his bride, the church. That's good news for us this morning. So I would invite you in just a moment. We have stations set up around the room. We do this each and every week. The bread represents the broken body of Christ, but it's a reminder that we have been made whole even today, spiritually in Christ. We dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. So even now, when the father looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful selves. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So as we participate in this, the scripture commands us, Paul tells us to come with clean and pure hearts, being reminded that we are these vessels of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. This is where we find life. And this is a reminder that as we go into our homes, into the workplace, into our communities, we take this life with us. So let's participate in this meal reflectively, remembering what Christ has done, repentfully, confessionally, but let's also do this joyfully, rejoicing in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf and that we're gonna see him again. So family, you are invited to join me as we participate in this meal together.